Good evening. I'm having a little bit of a deja vu moment. Uh, the first night we were here, I think I shared that I uh, gave my first Dharma talk ever, sitting almost exactly in this constellation. Um, and that was, I think, four years ago. And I still get really nervous when I'm giving a Dharma talk. Um, so that's one of the edges of my practice. So I, you know, I, I, I think of myself as a um, foundationalist. I don't know if that's a word. But I really enjoy and give great uh, honor and uh, respect to the simple core teachings of the Buddha. And so much of the time in retreats and uh, in teaching, there's uh, a lot of information put forth from the Dharma that's kind of the bells and whistles of the Dharma. You know, the jhana practice and all the multitude of lists and I always kind of stand in the position of like, make it simple for me. This mind is 62 years old. I can't remember all those lists. <laughs> I wasn't trained in Asia. I wasn't a monastic for 10 years or more. Uh, so what I offer you tonight are some of my reflections on the Four Noble Truths, which actually the whole of the Dharma unfolds from. Just to start off with some words from the Samyutta Nikaya. Some of you, I'm sure, have heard this. A handful of leaves. The Blessed One was once living at Kasambi in a wood of Samsapa trees. He picked up a few leaves in his hand and asked the bhikkhus, how do you conceive this, bhikkhus? Which is more, the few leaves that I have picked up in my hand or those in the wood? The leaves the Blessed One has picked up in his hand are few, Lord. Those in the wood are far more. So too, bhikkhus, the things that I have known by direct knowledge are many. The things I have told you are only a few. Why have I not told them to you? Because they bring no benefit, no advancement in the holy life, and because they do not lead to dispassion, to fading, to seizing, to stilling, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. That is why I have not told them to you, and what I have told you is, this is suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. That is what I have told you. Why have I told it? Because it brings benefit and advancement in the holy life. And because it leads to dispassion, to fading, to seizing, to stilling, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. So, bhikkhus, let your task be this. This is suffering. This is the origin of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. So the good news is that uh, the unhappiness, the distress, the suffering of humanity can be overcome through spiritual means. And by that I'm speaking to affecting the human heart, engaging the human heart, as opposed to the material or physical things which we see a proliferation of in our times now. 
The teaching of the Four Noble Truths is one of the central teachings of this particular path. This Theravada school of Buddhism holds this sutta as the quintessence of the teaching of the Buddha. There it's said in black and white. I didn't make it up. It is held that this one sutta contains all that is necessary for understanding Dhamma and for enlightenment. From the Diga Nikaya, again monks, in regard to dhammas, one abides contemplating dhammas in terms of the Four Noble Truths. And how does one, in regard to dhammas, abide contemplating dhammas in terms of the Four Noble Truths? Here, one knows as it really is. This is dukkha. One knows as it really is. This is the arising of dukkha. One knows as it is really, this is the cessation of dukkha. One knows as it really is, this is the way leading to the cessation of dukkha, the Diganakaya. So I think it's just really awesome that uh, this mind of this man, now known as Buddha, in the course, which you heard the story from Kitisaro, I believe it was, last night, of all the trials and tribulations and experiences and situations that he moved through to come to the determination and understanding that we now so uh, fortunately have the opportunity to engage with, that just these four noble truths, out of everything that he experienced, out of when he was sitting on the night of his enlightenment, Mara was throwing everything at him that could be thrown at him. And he comes out of that the next day, and he says, this is what it boils down to, these four noble truths. That's really kind of magnificent when you think of it. Imagining the mind that that was. Understanding that in life, there is suffering. There are moments of dukkha, sometimes just fleeting suffering, and there are long periods of what sometimes seems intractable, permanent suffering. There are times of deep, intense suffering and moments of subtle, just barely detectable suffering, but suffering nevertheless. Understanding, accepting, and knowing this and the meaning of these noble truths is the gateway to wisdom and freedom. Understanding that the cause of the suffering is clinging, clinging to desired objects and states of being, and aversion and delusion as to how things are. Or another way to hear that is not accepting things as they are. In one of Joseph's talks when I was on retreat with him, he said that if you're struggling with something, most likely there is something in the experience or the condition that you are not accepting. Understanding there is an end of suffering that you can release suffering by letting go of the clinging or putting down these desires. Both Kittisara and Tanisara have been speaking to that a great deal over the last couple of days. Understanding that there is a path, an eightfold path to freedom from suffering that we can actually follow like guides and integrate into our world, view, and live from. So it's possible. It's not some highfalutin, unattainable um, practice or engagement that um, is called for to, in this very life, find freedom. These four ennobling, ennobling, investing with dignity or honor, inspiring, 
These four ennobling truths are the foundation of the wisdom of this path. When integrated and metabolized into our view and understanding, there becomes the possibility of clarifying the mind-heart so that it no longer inclines towards suffering. Suffering, or dukkha, is the common bond of experience that all beings share. All beings since the beginning of time. All beings, no matter what social or economic standing, race, ethnicity, or religious beliefs, those with privilege, and those most disenfranchised and desperate. This understanding is the way into the way in to waking up and stirring our capacity for bringing compassion forward, both for ourselves and others. The wars, enslavement, the decimation of peoples, the degradation of our planet and disrespect, terrorism, and harm done to our animal relatives are all the direct manifestation of greed, aversion, and delusion. These misguided and misunderstood actions can only exist because of the denial of the interconnectedness of all things. If we humans could see clearly this fact, that we all share this common bond of suffering, it would leave us incapable of doing these things and inflicting harm and causing more suffering. It is helpful to have the understanding that the Buddha speaks of three types of suffering. The suffering caused by physical and mental pain, which you've heard often as sickness, aging, and death the suffering caused by constant change, or anicca, life's constantly changing nature, impermanence. And the third type of suffering, anatta, or not-self. It arises because all things in this life are of a conditioned nature. This type is the subtlest and hardest to recognize to know that each moment of experience is composed of the contact between aggregates and experience. I was thinking about this thing about not-self and how oftentimes it can be a complicated or more challenging concept to understand. And when I tried to think of an example that was outside of uh, the individual holding of that concept and understanding. What, what came to me that actually um, this experience of not-self, I'm thinking, must actually happen for people who emigrate. For people who emigrate, not so much from uh, one country to another, like not from Canada to U.S. You know, there's enough similarities there that you could hold on to the self hold on to identities, although some of them were shift. But for people that emigrate from countries um, to another country which is totally oppositional or totally unlike the country of origin, in that process of immigration, you lose yourself. You lose your identity. You have to begin again to create I'm imagining that's why they say that it takes at least seven years for this um, experience of immigration to uh, normalize for people when they come into a new country. And that's something I think interesting to, to hold in mind. For each of the three truths, there are, for each of the four truths, there are three aspects. And therefore, there are 12 insights that arise out of the understanding of the truths. So each of the four, one, two, three, four, have three aspects of insight that align, therefore making 12. The first noble truth, what is the noble truth of suffering? Birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. 
Sickness is suffering. Dissociation from the loved is suffering. Not to get what one wants is suffering. There is this truth of suffering. Such was the vision, insight, wisdom, knowing, and light that arose in me about things not heard before. This is the Buddha speaking. This noble truth must be penetrated by fully understanding suffering. Such was the vision, insight, wisdom, knowing, and light that arose in me about things not heard before. This noble truth has, has been penetrated by fully understanding suffering. Such was the vision, wisdom, knowing, and light that arose in me about things not heard before. Samyutta Nikaya. The first noble truth is not saying that everything is suffering. You know what people think of us, us Buddhist people. They think we're these dour, serious, like, you know, not filled with any joy because all we deal with is suffering. So the first noble truth really is not saying that everything is, is suffering. It's not a metaphysical statement of doctrine about the absolute. The noble truth is a truth to reflect upon. In particular, Western minds find it challenging to understand this because it is interpreted as a metaphysical truth. You know, I think the Western mind is a particularly conditioned mind where we want to uh, categorize and uh, know the actuality of the truth. And it's hard for these conditioned minds to hang out in the space of uh, creativity, fluidity, harmony, balance. Reflecting on the first noble truth, there is suffering, is the first insight. The recognition and accepting that there is suffering actually then empowers you to notice and investigate suffering in your own life. So like how many times have you heard this, but how many times have you actually paused and checked in to this understanding of there is suffering? We can eat all the food we want. We can have all the relationships we, we have. We can have all the sex we have. We can go on all the trips we go on. We can get all the degrees that we get. We can look for the perfect job. All in our attempts to manage this uh, underlying non-acceptance and non-recognition and non-realizing that it is a truth, just like the sun rises and sets. Suffering is one of the truths of being embodied, of having a nervous system. This seemingly simple recognition is a core domain of suffering in which we design whole lives around, avoiding the recognition acceptance of this truth. Nothing big. Just the simple recognition that there is suffering. Ignorance of this insight is what causes us to claim the suffering, then proclaiming, I don't want to suffer, making it personal. Then engaging in all kinds of activities and actions to avoid the recognition of this truth. Even saying, I meditate. I go on retreats to get out of suffering, but I'm still suffering, and I don't want to suffer. What can I do to get rid of the suffering? How can I get out of it? The activation of the clinging and aversion and delusion gets set once again into motion. The first noble truth is not, I am suffering and I want to end it. The insight is, there is suffering. This is a basic insight to look at, to look at how things are with a clear perception and acceptance is to be empowered and sets the stage for being completely honest with ourselves about the suffering we are experiencing. 
Without this wise view, it is easy to ignore, suppress, or flee from the knowledge of what is so, and to put the blame on circumstance for the presence of unsatisfactoriness and pain in our lives. When we break the noble truths down and look at the three insights accompanying each statement of a truth, it assists in clearing obstruction to wise views so that we can engage with our practice and find balance and stability for a foundationally well life. And I think, you know, we're kind of moving into solidly into the middle of the retreat. And at this point, thinking about the um, uh, meetings we've been having, I think a lot of you all are up close and personal around this, making this discernment and this distinction. You know, hearing yourselves speaking of the experience that you're having and the hidden underlying understanding that this too is suffering. Oh, my practice, I came here wanting this to happen and it hasn't happened yet. I don't know when it's going to come. I'm bored. I'm frustrated. All of these ways that we misunderstand this process of purification and detoxification that we're in as we came through those doors. The three aspects of each of the noble truths has a pattern. There is the statement, then the prescription, and then the results of having practiced. We can also understand this through the use of the Pali words, Pariya, you know, I'm smiling, because when I was in the, this is an aside, I was in the back in, in the office and I was talking to Rodney. I was like, oh, Rodney, when is this going to end? I can't do this for 10 years. I go through so much when I'm giving a Dharma talk. <laughs> suffer, 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 my, my, my. And Rodney says, oh, don't worry about it. A couple of years, you're going to be extemporaneously giving these talks and you're going to be speaking Pali. <laughs> so... We can also understand this through the use of the Pali words Pariyati, Patiparti, and Pativeda. Pariyati is the theory or the statement, there is suffering. Patipati is the practice, actually practicing with it. And Pativeda is the result of the practice. Ajahn Sumedha speaks of this as a reflective pattern where we are actually developing our minds in a reflective way. He says, a Buddha mind is a reflective mind that knows things as they are, and that we use these four noble truths for our development. The three aspects of the first noble truth, there is suffering, the second aspect being suffering should be understood, and the third aspect, suffering has been understood, are helpful guideposts to fully knowing this to be true in your bones. To look at the pain and anguish we may feel not from the perspective of its mind, but as a reflection, there is suffering. This is suffering. The insight being to look at the suffering and see it as dukkha and not as a personal misery and not reacting to it in a habitual way. And the other thing, which you know, I'm, I'm sure you know on some level, but really the only way to feed freedom is through all this. Like, you can't get there without this. So it would behoove all of us to just get busy. <laughs> You know, and like Utejaniya says, um, you know, uh, Kittisara speaks of it in welcome, you know, welcome. Uh, Utejaniya speaks of it like turning towards, turning towards the hindrances, turning towards the arising and almost like giving it a, because that means it's that much closer that it's getting you to the cessation of suffering. 
to look at the pain and anguish we may feel, not from the perspective of its mind, but as a reflection. There is suffering. This is suffering. The insight being to look at the suffering and see it as dukkha and not as a personal misery. Oh, we are so addicted to that. Personal mystery. And not reacting to it in a habitual way. And sometimes I think even, you know, when you've been practicing a bit, there is a way that the practice can become habitualized. That we start to cloud over again because we're not bringing the energy and the effort necessary to sustain vibrancy and aliveness in our practice. Life is stressful and uneasy for all people everywhere. If you are embodied, there's no way out, no way to escape or avoid pain and loss. No one is exempt. The full acceptance of our commonality and connection through this truth is the wellspring from which to move towards kindness and compassion, forgiveness and generosity of heart. There can be a great deal of resistance at accepting this truth, as it would then entail having to become responsible to our lives, responsible to our lives, and that takes courage and commitment. For many people, it is not so far-fetched to understand suffering in the big picture, as it is acceptable to suffer behind loss, physical challenges, mental challenges, and financial devastation, etc., at least for a time. Though the expectation of community often is that at some point, you just better get it together. (laughs) However, when one is living an okay, pretty good life, A tendency more often is to deny the more subtle aspects of suffering caused by the mind's wanting and needing. The observable manifestation of attachment, craving, aversion, and delusion. By denying the suffering in our lives, we are prevented from responding wisely to it. This then begets more suffering, and there we go, caught up in the vicious cycle to nowhere good. So much of our existence, of our identities, of our striving to become, is generated from maintaining the illusion that we have got it together, that the constancy of stress, of suffering, somehow diminishes us in the eyes of others, and in our own eyes. Thereby, self-esteem is shot, self-confidence is out the window, and the ability to make choices and take actions from a place of calm and strength of goodness becomes non-accessible. There is little room for being a full expression of being human in a society that is based on pleasure, immediate gratification, overstimulation, ego deification, and which extols the merits of overconsumption and defines success as our ability to control outcomes. The second aspect of the first noble truth, suffering is to be known or understood. This is the pause that I'm suggesting we take and what we've been up to for these last few days. To engage with the practice such that we see clearly this second insight, that dukkha is something to understand. That the way to freedom is to understand the nature of this insight and not just to try and get rid of it. Choose to be mindful of the actual experience of pain, stress, and emotional distress as it manifests in the body, mind, and heart. This allows for us to come to know and understand the true nature of our suffering as a lived physical experience and to realize 
It is this awareness that can connect us to our own true humanity and to connection with all beings everywhere, including the earth. It is also this level of knowing which then propels us forward to have the ability to transform the conditioning of our life from an obstructed view of non-clarity to a foundation built moment by moment from clarity and clear seeing, accompanied by a heart full of gratitude and appreciation that freedom is possible. It is freeing to live a life knowing this moment is like this. The third aspect of the first noble truth, suffering has been understood, is to know that you know. This knowing, if truly known, will call us to consciously and intentionally shift and alter our perspective to include the reality of suffering, thereby causing us to reshape our beliefs and we then develop the ability to live more wisely right now. When we practice with suffering, looking at it, accepting it, knowing it, and then letting it be that way, it is then this we can say, suffering has been understood. And even in this retreat, you know, you're used to coming to retreats um, at IMS and maybe at other centers also, where for the most part, um, there is an unspoken agreement um, among the teachers and between the teachers and the retreatants that we're not going to bring the world in here. We're not going to bring politics. We're not going to bring economic. Don't worry, I'm not going to go there. (laughs) However, just by virtue of um, even the opening day, in terms of calling attention to the diversity within the community, the um, affinity groups, um, Tanisara's talk, Kitasaro's talk. It's inescapable, and I think it's actually really time to understand that these two are places of immense suffering, and that if we just continue to work on our individual suffering, freedom remains elusive and not possible. The second noble truth. What is the noble truth of the origin of suffering? It is craving which renews being and is accompanied by relish and lust, relishing this and that. In other words, craving for sensual desires, craving for being, craving for non-being. But whereon does this craving arise and flourish? Wherever there is what seems lovable and gratifying, thereon it arises and flourishes. There is this noble truth of the origin of suffering. Such was the vision, insight, wisdom, knowing, and light that arose in me about things not heard before. The Buddha said, Reflecting on the second noble truth with its three aspects. There is a cause or origin of suffering, which is attachment to desire. Desire should be let go. Desire has been let go. Craving for, grasping for, or the attachment to sense pleasures, craving for, or the attachment to existence, and craving for or the attachment to non-existence. These are the dominant and most pervasive cause of suffering. It is the origin of suffering. Attachment, aversion, and delusion cause suffering. We contemplate that the origin of suffering is attachment to desire. Desire in Pali is tanha. There are three aspects of desire we practice with. 
kama tanha is wanting sense pleasure through the body or other senses and always seeking things to excite or please our senses. Then there is bhava tanha and we can contemplate the feeling of wanting to become something, the desire to become, striving to become happy, seeking to become rich, or even to become important and respected by becoming immersed in an endeavor to make the world right. This wanting to become something other than what we are right now. Then there is the third kind of desire, when we become disillusioned with becoming something, there is the desire to get rid of things. This is vabva tanha. We can contemplate the desire to get rid of. I want to get rid of my suffering. I want to get rid of this pain or this sleepiness. We are not trying to get rid of the desire to get rid of things, nor do we encourage that desire. We reflect. It's like this. It's like this to want to get rid of something. I've got to conquer my anger. Then I will become kind. I think as you hear me say that piece right there, you can really see into how this um, getting rid of and this becoming and this non-becoming is being acted out so clearly and prolifically uh, in our culture today. The second insight of the second noble truth is desire should be let go. The second noble truth is not about identifying with desire in any way, but it's about recognizing desire. And Kitasaro has been talking a lot about that, recognizing, allowing, bringing forth. The third insight, desire has been let go of. We actually begin to know letting go not like a theoretical concept, but a direct insight. And we know letting go has been accomplished when we let go. This is why we practice. And I know that concept or that instruction is one of the more challenging ones to really um, understand. And the way one comes to understand that is by practicing letting go. It's not... A, uh, until it's not something you can figure out, like you have to do it. To Nisar and Kitasara, one of the um, ways they've presented that that's been really useful to me, and I think um, we may have heard one of them say this so far, but um, it's helpful for me in terms of that particular concept to have my understanding come through the awareness of letting things be, which is a little bit different than letting it go. This is an action that needs to happen, kind of, when you hear letting it go. But when you can just let something be, then it can just, you don't have to really do anything there. You know, and you get to actually work with it. So that may be helpful to somebody. What is this noble truth of the cessation of suffering? The third noble truth. It is the remainder less fading and cessation of that same craving, the rejecting, the relinquishing, leaving and renouncing of it. But whereon is this craving abandoned and made to cease? Wherever there is what seems lovable and gratifying, thereon it is abandoned and made to cease. There is this noble truth of the cessation of suffering, such was the vision, insight, wisdom, knowing, and light that arose in me about things not heard before. The Samyutta Nikaya. Reflecting on the third noble truth and the three aspects. There is an end of suffering. The cessation of dukkha should be realized. The cessation of suffering has been realized. The complete fading away and cessation of craving and attachment 
Cessation from suffering can be achieved by forsaking, abandoning, liberating oneself, and detaching from craving, letting go, or putting down attachment. Cessation extinguishes the flames of greed, aversion, and delusion. A whole aim of this practice and understanding is to develop a reflective mind in order to let go of delusions. The teaching of the Four Noble Truths is a teaching about letting go through investigation or looking into by contemplating. This is how it is. Why is it like this? Is there more about this? It does not mean that the mind is forming opinions or having judgments about whether or not things are bad or good, useful or useless. We are opening our minds to consider and ponder. What does this mean? One of the aspects of this practice and Dhamma is we are not required, and I I love this. This is for me why I do what I do. Now, where was I? (laughs) This is how it is. Why is it like this? Is there more about this? It does not mean that the mind is forming opinions or having judgments about whether or not things are bad or good, useful or useless. We are opening our minds to consider and ponder what does this mean. One of the aspects of this practice and Dhamma is we are not required to come to understanding through blind belief, but that we find wisdom after our willingness to be receptive and considering. It was actually as a result of Buddha's willingness that we even are sitting here today, engaged with this practice and these understandings. It is this mind state that is the way out of suffering. It is not the mind that has fixed views and prejudices and thinks it knows it all or just takes what others say as being the truth. It is the mind that is open and practiced through reflections on these Four Noble Truths that can see within our own mind with clarity. It takes a willingness to actually look at our own reactions to be able to see the attachments and to contemplate. We must allow things to arise since before you can let something go or let something be, you have to admit them into full consciousness. All of it, the despair, the anger, the disappointment, the hindrances, all of it. Although cessation is easy to understand intellectually, to realize it may be difficult because this means at times being with or abiding with that which we think we cannot bear. The result is, though, that the suffering and the point we break is that those places where not seeing it becomes more devastating than allowing it to arise and be seen and contemplated. In other words, as Ajahn Sumedho said, to allow this process of cessation to work, we must be willing to suffer. We need to remember that anything and all things that arise sees. We contemplate fear and desire so that we can see through Mara and so that we are not deluded anymore. When I came across this bit of information, it made me think, you know, in, in, in this tradition, um, we're limited um, in terms of knowing peoples who have lived um, in this country, um, who have taken extreme measures and who have exhibited uh, deep courage 
people of African descent, Jewish people, immigrant families, Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, Pauli Murray, Lee Jaobo, Gandhi, Chief Joseph, Harriet Tubman, Harry Wu, Ellie Weissel, and on and on and on. So this capacity for engaging with self and others to impact, to shift, to transform, to transmute the suffering of our own selves and the suffering of others. All of these people had to navigate that. These people didn't make the major kind of shifts and changes that um, they did by being stuck in delusion, by allowing fear to impact the choices of actions that they took. Rumi says, don't turn away. Keep your eyes on the wounded places. That's where the light enters. The fourth noble truth, there is a path out of suffering. The way is the eightfold path. The path is established not on a technique, but on an understanding. The three aspects of insights for the fourth noble truth are, there is the eightfold path, the way out of suffering. This path should be developed, and this path has been developed. The wisdom factors of the Eightfold Path are skillful understanding or wise view. And you can word this however it resonates for you best in terms of it landing in your heart for understanding. We look at experience in terms of cause and effect. Cause and effect is at the heart of the path. Every action we take is a cause to an effect. With the understanding of the first three, three truths, we come to this accepting that it is up to us to create the causes for a good life we wish for. There is what is given and what is offered and what is sacrificed. There is the result of good and bad actions the Majamadkaya. Another of the wisdom factor is skillful thinking or wise intention. We take responsibility for our impulses and inclinations. Understanding this aspect of the path, we cultivate the virtues of generosity, loving friendliness or loving kindness, and compassion. A kindness could be as simple as not holding on to a negative impression that I might have of someone, including myself. It doesn't have to be something that is externally <laughs> oriented. You know, um, I was on a retreat, I was on a women's retreat here at uh, IMS in the early years of my practice. It was maybe the second retreat that I was on, and there were uh, 90 to 95 women here with Christina and Narayan, and myself and my girlfriend, a good friend of mine, were the only women of color on that retreat. So that was the first thing to manage. Um, but then we're going about the retreat, and I know some of you all have had this experience, not necessarily in this same way, but um, I had this experience of, um, I saw I'm left-handed, so I would identify a table that had a corner where I could sit and be comfortable while I was eating. And this woman every day sat in my seat. <laughs> 
and the th I, I killed this woman with my mind. I, this went on for almost a week. I think it was a 10-day retreat or a 9-day retreat. This went on and on and on and on, and I was suffering, and I was, you know, I'm not even going to go into what I was saying because it will turn some of you off. But um, this ability to be kind in mind is something to cultivate as part of our practice, along with all the external compassion and kindness that we're trained when we do metta and karuna and other practices. But to, to remember that story, to actually continue to mine the mind for kindness. Whatever a bhikkhu frequently thinks and ponders on, that will become the inclination of their mind. Ethical conduct is the next factors of the uh, Eightfold Path. Skillful or wise speech. We refrain from lying, exaggerating, knowingly creating a false impression, avoid engaging in harsh speech, swearing and insults, or malicious talk and idle gossip. Be ingratiated of word and refrain from pointless babble. So here we start to get in the more um, subtle or fine-tuning parts of applying contemplation, applying, uh, not applying, but um, uh, uh, ushering in, ushering in under the wise, watchful eye of awareness. It's easy kind of to catch the big things. But when you start actually taking a look at the layered subtleties of how we do harm to ourselves and others, um, there is a, a great uh, opportunity for setting an intention around that and to not stop, to not stop at the big transformations. A description of right speech from the Buddha. He rejoices in peace and such words as are gentle, pleasant to hear, kind, heart-stirring, polite. At the proper time, he will speak words that are worth remembering, well-grounded, purposeful, and helpful. Skillful and wise action, referring to bodily action, leading a moral life, abstaining from killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, and intoxication. Can you hear the precepts in this? Therefore, employing the investigation of the heart as a way to support leading a life free of harm of oneself or others. When our mind is settled, we connect with the heart. Therefore, the practice is to investigate the heart the place of latent impulses and triggers, which then allow us to go where an impulse or reaction is directly felt. If we widen and soften, we can let the reaction go, and a wise response will arise. Skillful or wise livelihood. Choose an ethical profession and conduct oneself at work with honesty and integrity. It can feel like a big pressure due to the need to have a livelihood to sustain your lifestyle. Refraining from dealing in arms, for example. <laughs> Drugs, liquor are guidelines to begin with. Hmm. Then there's concentration. Skillful or wise effort. Be unrelenting and vigilant in preventing and overcoming unskillful and negative mind states and cultivate and maintain positive states of mind. Effort used to prevent the mind from becoming overwhelmed by ignorance, to cut away or ease out wrong views and habits, to dig the soil for cultivation of what is good, Using your energy carefully is right effort. Using more energy to practice with kindness and patience. 
Energy has to be sustainable. Skillful or wise mindfulness. Practicing mindfulness meditation every day and cultivate mindfulness as an approach to everyday living. Wise mindfulness naturally supports wisdom, not just generalized mindfulness. Skillful or wise concentration. Training our minds in single-pointed focus so that we can attain deep concentration. Cultivating a gathered and collected heart-mind. This quality of heart-mind arises and arrives through seeing through and abandoning the effects of the hindrances. The Four Noble Truths are a lifetime's reflection. It is not just to gain understanding and wisdom by realizing the insight of the Four Noble Truths, the three aspects and the twelve stages, and then going on to more advanced techniques, complicated theories and ideas. The whole road to freedom is lit by the luminosity of the simplicity yet wisdom of the Four Noble Truths. By studying, understanding, practicing and cultivating this path and the Four Noble Truths, a natural arising of an integrated life unfolds, grounded in a clear and luminous mind and a strong, graceful, compassionate heart. Thank you for your listening. Let's sit for just a moment. poem. She let go. She let go without a thought or a word. She let go. She let go of the fear. She let go of the judgments. She let go of the confluence of opinions swarming around her head. She let go of the committee of indecision within her. She let go of all the right reasons, wholly and completely, without hesitation or worry. She just let go. She didn't ask anyone for advice. She didn't read a book on how to let go. She didn't search the scriptures. She just let go. She let go of all the memories that held her back. She let go of all the anxiety that kept her from moving forward. She let go of the planning and of all the calculations about how to do it just right. She didn't promise to let go. She didn't journal about it. She didn't write the projected date in her daytimer. She made no public announcement and put no ad in the paper. She didn't check the weather report or read her daily horoscope. She just let go. She didn't analyze whether she should let go. She didn't call her friends to discuss the matter. She didn't do a five-step spiritual mind treatment. She didn't call the prayer line. She didn't utter one word. She just let go. No one was around when it happened. There was no applause or congratulations. No one thanked her or praised her. No one noticed a thing. Like a leaf falling from a tree, she just let go. There was no effort. There was no struggle. It wasn't good and it wasn't bad. It was what it was, and it is just that. In the space of letting go, she let it all be. A small smile came over her face. A light breeze blew through her. And the sun and the moon 
shone forevermore. Reverend Sapphire Rose. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.